podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Career Profiles Podcast, part two of the Peter Jackson story. We really hope you enjoyed the first part. This second part is now going to bring you more about Peter Jackson's career, more of the information around John L. Sullivan, around James Corbett, around the stuff that you really probably wanted to hear about. But we decided to split it into two parts so that we could give you more of a story about Peter Jackson himself as well, and not just about his boxing career. So in the second part, you're going to get to hear so much more about everything that happened following his successes and of course he's 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 going for the world championship that's his ultimate goal he's trying to get there and he has to beat the guys that are at the top those that are absolutely racist those that are absolutely drawing that color line and those that are absolutely not wanting to fight a man of a different color skin so in this second part you will get to hear all about his journey Yes, and uh, there are a lot of moments within this part of the story where there's going to be a lot of racism. And, you know, again, we're just going to just highlight. I know you have Sean already, but just there's there's a lot of stuff that is said that is very just, yeah, it's, it's, we don't associate ourselves with it. We just want to make the point of how these guys said, literally from the first paragraph, it jumped straight in as well, pretty much, and how just it is just so disrespectful in every sense of the word. But, that we want to present to you the utmost picture of these guys. And I think the one thing you'll find is there's a certain heavyweight champion that you're not going to like too much at the end of this. So, Charles Edward Davis, he was obviously the guy from the first part. He was now his manager. And he said in an interview that Peter would fight Sullivan in May at the earliest, probably in June, with San Francisco, his preferred destination, because a fair fight was assured. After seeing all Sullivan's fights except for one with Charlie Mitchell, he could not predict a winner. He said, John is a great man and so is Jackson. That's all I can say. The Chronicle had reported that Sullivan as saying, I will meet Jackson at the California Athletic Club with gloves, providing the organisation will make it an object. If the club fails to put up a suitable purse, then I shall quit the business anyhow. So Peter actually told a reporter in Queenstown that to be candid with you, if I did not think that I was going to obtain a victory with Sullivan, I would not meet him. I always fight to win. However, while Peter made the voyage back home, he was informed that Sullivan was now asking for $1,000 to fight him. He then sent a telegram that said, white men, 10000 a doll, a piece, uh, and niggas double that price. That's that's his exact telegram. So he's gone from 1000 to 10000 now. And obviously with Peter Jackson being black, he's now basically putting it up to 20000 So Sullivan must have known that Peter had earned well while over in Britain. An article actually printed on May 1890 by the Chicago Tribune estimated that Peter's own earnings from the tour was actually $10,000. Before that, the Tribune quoted a letter from Davis which said that Peter and he would be dividing up $40,000. So hence probably why Sullivan's asking for 20 now. 
After arriving in New York in January 27, 1890, and after a brief stay, Peter and his team moved on to Boston, where Peter was now getting $2,000 a week, $800 for just one night's work. One night, Peter actually exhibited at the Boston Music Hall, and Sullivan actually sat in the audience. Peter told the San Francisco Chronicle, I did not see him. They told me he was on the stage two or three yards from me, but I did not see him. Sullivan was quoted as saying, Now that I have settled that Mississippi trouble, I want to attend to Jackson's claim to the championship. I am anxious to have one more battle before I retire from the ring, and of course Jackson is the only man to be thought of just now. He said he would fight with gloves because he was sick of illegalities, and apparently he wanted the 20 grand because most of his funds had vanished in legal costs. The Cincinnati Inquirer published a notice from New York on March the 31st, and it said that Sullivan does not underrate Jackson's pugilistic prowess. I have the best reasons in the world of knowing. The big fellow saw Jackson spar with his old side partner, Jack Ashton, in Boston, and on that occasion, I am satisfied Ashton did all in his power to put Peter to his trumps and expose his style of fighting for Sully's benefit. The result of that go satisfied Sullivan thoroughly that Peter was remarkably quick and clever, but that he could defeat him. In a conversation I had with him a week or two after this bout, Sullivan told me that Jackson had a wonderful reach. Said he, in this respect, he has an advantage over any fighter I know of, but he don't know how to make the best use of it. He then stood up and illustrated Peter's style of attack and hit him perfectly. But Sullivan's confidence, it dwindled. On January the 17th, it was reported that Sullivan was now demanding $25,000 for any contest with Peter Jackson. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch published an article sent from San Francisco on May the 19th headed Does He Fear Jackson? which reported that Sullivan was having second thoughts about fighting Peter. The challenger continued his tour and moved on to Washington. On February the 20th, 1890, Peter fought soldier James Walker in front of 3,000 fans. More were even turned away. And Jackson showed why he was the clear best in this division forcing Walker to quit in just 40 seconds. That performance would not have helped his calls for that world title shot. He then stopped Guy, the gypsy, what a cracky name, in 4 minutes and 26 seconds, damaging his left hand as a result. Even still, they moved on to Baltimore. On February the 26th, the Daily Alta California reported, the Negro population has gone wild over him and their demonstrations at his exhibitions have been so offensive that the white toughs become exasperated. While Peter was addressing the mixed crowd outside, they actually attacked each other and rotten eggs were thrown at him. His, this is what he reported, his coloured admirers formed a wall, however, and protected him. So, the racial element there, I think that was one of the worst parts of the tour. Well, they left uh, for Brooklyn before any more trouble could escalate where he fought another exhibition and where he met George Dixon, the black featherweight champion at the time, uh, fresh from his championship fight in Boston with uh, Cal McCarthy. He was actually introduced to the crowd and become a friend of Peter's. Before leaving for San Francisco, Peter fought Gus Lambert, which turned nasty after Jackson hurt his opponent. He grabbed Jackson around the waist and held him until they were separated. This persisted throughout. 
where the 240 pounder he was, massive geezer, would hold Jackson in a bear hug and then he would just never let go. He was uh, he was never disqualified by the referee. He was clearly on the fix with him because Jackson couldn't knock Lambert out and he won $100 because of that and was carried around on the shoulders of his fans. Peter actually refused to shake his hands, saying, no, I won't shake hands with a mongrel. If you had stood off and fought for one minute, there would have been some satisfaction in meeting you, but you're a coward at heart and you know it. The crowd actually hissed Jackson. They moved on to Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis, Ohio and Dayton and Springfield and Columbus before arriving in Chicago and then back to New York. It was a complete success. It was sparring exhibitions and sharp outs with local boxers in every state, but people just wanted to see the star of the show, Peter Jackson, in action. Now, during a banquet in New York at a suave establishment, Peter addressed the room and said, I have been successful in my profession beyond my fondest hopes, and I shall try to conduct myself as a gentleman. I do not desire any title which is not my right. I believe in a fair field and no favour. The California Athletic Club's motto. I have never said that I could best any pugilist. If I do meet Mr Sullivan, I will do my best to win. I thank you, gentlemen. Now, from February through to April 1890, Peter continued to travel around the country. He stopped off in Louisville, Kentucky, which marked the only time that Peter ever fought in the South. Now, we all know that the South of America was well known for racial segregation, but Peter was always careful not to associate himself with any such divide. He was interviewed on March 31st, 1893 in the Nutsford Hotel in Salt Lake City. Peter was asked by a Tribune reporter, Are you the idol of the coloured people much as Sullivan was the idol of the Irish? And Peter replied, Idol of the coloured people? No. Why should I be the idol of the coloured people? I never go with them. Seldom meet them. They do nothing for me except go out on the street and holler or yell. And I'm not after that. The reporter pressed on. But don't the coloured people rally round you, look upon you as a prominent representative and back you as far as they can? Rejecting any allegation of demagoguery, Peter said firmly, no, assuredly not. He, he, he did not want to side with anybody. Peter was a boxer who wanted to earn as much money as he possibly could during his career and he had no aspirations of being a leader of the black community. Even though these times were, they were seriously dreadful, they were troublesome for Black Americans. It was, it, you know, lynchings were going on. It was, it was awful, awful. So he just disassociated with them, with that. So Davis was in Chicago. So his manager, when he actually made a statement to the journalists who asked when Peter and Sullivan would be fighting, everyone wanted to know, and he said, "We are not particularly anxious for a match of that kind. We want a few plain truths." I am making bread and butter out of Peter Jackson and white or black. No athlete can ever come to me and say I have not been fruitful in his to his interests. Interesting statement. And Davis then said that Sullivan was quite out of shape and that if Gentleman Jim Colbert and he were matched, then Colbert would quite likely beat him. So thereafter, Davis and Peter would no longer be interested in Sullivan. Davison announced that Peter had hurt his right hand while sparring Guy the Gypsy, so he would be going to Mount Clemens for a fortnight's rest. He took a much-needed holiday north of Detroit near Salt Lake Clare, a spa resort with mineral springs, 
and nothing to do but lie around and unwind while nursing that right hand. At Mount Clemens, Peter actually gave away the bull terriers that he had acquired in England and released the English songbirds from their cages and dreamed of heading back to Australia to catch up with his friends. However, the Sullivan fight was still on at this time. So he got back to doing what he does best, and that was box. And back in Chicago again, and on May 19, he fought Denver Ed Smith, scheduled for five rounds. Jackson actually struggled with Smith's holding tactics again, and was unable to find the space to finish off his man on the inside, or inside the distance. However, he did knock him down several times in the first and second rounds. The decision was given to Jackson. The Denver Times said Smith has proven to the world that he has a heart and that it is in the proper place. Now they left for California on May the 24th, 1890 and then on to Salt Lake City and Ogden the following day. This quick turnover was due to James D. Barton, the sporting editor of the Ogden Evening News and John Russell, manager of the Novelty Theatre. They offered Peter $1,000 if he would stop off in Ogden for a stop-off one-night show, and of course, he agreed. It was easy money, and the visit improved his popularity as huge crowds came to see him spar a lightweight. At the end of May, Peter arrived back in San Francisco when he returned to the California Athletic Club and he was greeted with the news that Sullivan had upped his offer to fight him to a fee of $30,000, and in it would have to have been fought in Texas and not California. There was no response recorded as yet, so Peter bought a horse for $1,000 called Careless Boy, along with a single carriage and speed cart. In June, Peter was involved in a brawl with some Germans, but the press reports are varied. The Examiner said in its article on June the 17th, knocked out by Peter, that he attacked two good-natured Germans out for a day's pleasure with their wives and children. Destroyed forever the myth of the gentlemanly peaceful Jackson. The other was in the evening news from London on August the 15th, 1890, which read that Herman Helmick began to get insulting to the coloured man whom he did not know, as Peter and it got wild. 35 years later, Van Court actually retold his story in his memoirs, saying that the six German brewerymen lost the bet and proved bad losers and attacking Peter with a, a bucket when he tried to smooth things over. So he punched three of them in the stomach. The little sensation quickly subsided. So <laughs> it, if you make your own mind up, what, what story you want to believe? Accompanied by Fitzpatrick on July 28th, Peter left San Francisco on the Mariposa. At the dock, he was seen waving his return ticket and was actually quoted as saying, I won't say goodbye for I am coming back again. So after the Mariposa reached Honolulu on Saturday the 2nd of August, Peter was busy fulfilling arrangements made with that local entrepreneur, James Walsh, to give an exhibition. Peter the Great or at the Honolulu Musical or the Hawaiian Opera House, uh, assisted by local talent, had been advertised throughout. The local talent was another easy night's work for Peter who sailed the Mariposa on August 21st into Sydney Harbour in Australia. When Peter was within earshot, the musicians and fans welcoming him home sung Home Sweet Home, and then they actually played Our Jacks Come Home Today, and also See the Conquering Hero Comes. There you go, he's getting songs 
sung to him. Uh, to unwind, he actually spent his time going to Bondi Beach, swimming at the baths, drinking with his friends and acquaintances, going to the racetrack, having a lay-in and reading a book or two, apparently. Uh, the Sporting Standard actually told its readers on September 1890 that Jackson, it will be interesting to know, is a close student of the poets. He reads Shakespeare, but his favourite author in verse is Adam Lindsay Gordon. He says he is never tired of reading. How we beat the favourite, having uh, is one of the books, having been the favourite so often himself, it is kindred feeling. It is a kindred feeling. After a little rest, Peter felt obliged to give the Australian public what they demanded, and that was, of course, some exhibition fights. He decided to set up a tour and choose the Sydney Athletic Club run by a guy called Mick Dooley and another guy called George Dawson. The combination consisted of Peter, George Dawson, and the new featherweight champion of the world, Albert Griffiths, a.k.a. Griffo, a.k.a. Young Griffo, as he was known in America, because he was only 18. The rest of the party consisted of Fitzpatrick, Jake Bateman, who was Griffo's trainer, and Will Corbett, who had put the combination together and acted as MC. The combination visited Wagga Wagga, Melbourne, and moved on to South Australia. While in Adelaide, Peter was mobbed, so he gave them a speech before a sparring session, and he explained how he intended to uphold the colours under which he had fought and would always fight those of Australia. He was an Australian, and although he might not always be victorious, as he was the only one man among millions, he would do his best to win honestly whenever he entered the ring, and if he had to go down eventually, it would not be for want of trying to beat his opponent. Now in his thirties, Peter was being accused by his critics of destroying himself with prostitutes, and perhaps he had always spent time with the ladies of the night. Smiler Hales asked Peter, where did you see the prettiest woman you ever saw? And Peter replied suavely but evasively, Well now, I feel like a whiskey bottle that's being sucked clean dry. Of course, I have seen some lovely ladies. There are plenty of them in Australia and in America. If a man took off his hat to each he met, he'd be bald-headed in the day. Why, pretty women in America are as plentiful as snowflakes in winter. But if I've got to tell the truth, I must confess that Brighton Beach in England beats the world. On his return to Melbourne, Peter became a Freemason, which was surprising. Not that he was black or that he was a boxer, which was unusual, but because he was not an Australian native. Peter was just revisiting his home nation. Uh, his actual home at the time was in San Francisco. So the Masons actually debated it, but it, he was initiated finally on October the 1st, becoming an entered apprentice, took the second degree fellow craft on the 14th before leaving for Melbourne to then face Joe Goddard at the Crystal Palace in Richmond, Australia. Sporting Life of Philadelphia reported on December the 27th, 1890, Peter Jackson is a member of the General Gordon Lodge of Free and Accepted Mason, Sydney, and commented that the evening is probably unique in the history of the pugilistic ring or of masonry. Well, in front of a crowd of 3,000, Peter took on Goddard for the Australian and the Commonwealth heavyweight titles. So, in the third round, Jackson caught Goddard on the ear, which actually brought him to his knees. He didn't finish him off. The fifth was the most exciting when some heavy countering sent both men down to the canvas. 
Goddard actually recovered his legs first and gentlemanly extended his hand and helped Jackson to a standing position. Some sparring was followed by a very heavy rally and at the end of the agreed eight rounds, one judge called it for Jackson and the other for Goddard, whereas the referee, Professor Miller, declared it a draw. Peter was the better boxer by a country mile, but Goddard was as solid as an ox and Jackson found these type of opponents very difficult to handle. This is what Jim Jeffries would be, only with him far more scientifically eight years later on. Before his departure, the Maitland Mercury printed on November 29, 1890, Jackson was the recipient of a banquet and a purse of sovereigns from many of his Sydney's admirers. Then on November 26, Peter set sail for San Francisco on the Mariposa, stopping off at Honolulu on December 13th and then on December the 20th, 1890, Peter arrived in San Francisco. On arrival, Peter announced he was sick and worn out and he was heading to Byron Springs to recuperate. Like Mount Clemens, Byron Springs was another place of solitude with a grand hotel, separate cottages and spring houses. Peter was beginning to think of his future without boxing. He hadn't secured the John L. Sullivan fight, who was holding the world title at ransom and we will come to the why that was happening soon. And he couldn't continue to tour the will for much longer, and in a letter which he wrote for the Examiner, and was published just before Christmas of 1890, he wrote in depth about how he felt, and he said, I feel since getting acquainted with George Godfrey of Boston, that I have made several great mistakes in my way of conducting my affairs. While Godfrey was here, we talked several times about the pecuniary phases of a boxer's life and he often urged the wisdom of banking or investing the proceeds of matches as soon as they were received. His argument was that during the golden days of a boxer's life, he would have friends in plenty, and if taken sick, he would receive the best of care. But if permanent disability should come, and the boxer be compelled to seek other employment, no one would hold out a helping hand. I felt that the sun could not shine always, and I made my mind up to do a little haymaking before the storms came, and that is what I am here for now. Wanting to invest his money into something profitable, Peter identified a saloon called 25 Turk, which was in a perfect location for him to bring in some extra money away from the ring. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch remarked that, when considering where to put his money, and said, as a rule, a prizefighter invests in a saloon business, if any, as his reputation is a drawing card. Yeah, many do, and Peter opened his sporting salon in February 1891, but leased the place for seven to, to ten years after running the business for just a year. Now, even though he sold, he actually leased the premises until 1899, but by the summer of 1891, Paddy Slavin, who had beaten Kilrain in nine rounds on June 16, declared a $10,000 purse offer by the California Athletic Club to contest between himself and Peter. He said he would fight Jackson or Corbett after it had been decided which of the pair was the better man. So you've got Slavin, the Aussie, and Kilrain, who's the guy that lost to Sullivan. So Peter's attitude was that of a man getting quite irritated by those who have ducked him. He just said, quite simply, will I fight? Yes. I am ready to fight anybody who is in the business. Slavin, Sullivan or any other man. I don't care who it is. 
I don't say I can whip any man in the world, but I am willing to try. I will go wherever the most money is offered. Well, in December, he was offered and accepted a fight with gentleman Jim Colbert with a purse of $8,500 to the winner and $1,500 to the loser. On Sunday, April 5th, Peter had a road accident. Now, he had gone from Alameda to Oakland by dog cart and then by ferry to San Francisco, where he said farewell to some of his friends uh, going to Australia. So back in Oakland, according to Norton, he was in a dog cart when the horse took fright at some flapping paper on the floor, overturned the cart on the streetcar route and ran away. And Peter was left with a wrenched ankle. He was left without any serious injuries. However, as Johnston said, he suffered a badly bruised ankle. On April the 17th, St. Louis Dispatch correspondent reported that he had been so drunk that he fell out of the buggy. He was on crutches until April the 21st and had physiotherapy, water cures and electrical treatments. Considerable doubt was expressed by Davis and Bat Masterson as to whether he would be fit to fight. He should have rescheduled the bout, but Corbett refused. His intention was to drag the fight out as long as possible and hope that Jackson's ankle would buckle under the pressure. It was a cunning plan, but you can't help but give him credit. Fighters must always take advantage of any weaknesses their opponents present. The fight did take place on May the 21st, 1891 at the California Athletic Club. Jackson was reportedly able to take control early on and was able to maintain it for a while. In truth, Corbett let Jackson do everything as he danced away from him. Jackson had counted upon a stand-up fight, which he would win quickly and not trouble his ankle too much. But Corbett wanted to drag the fight out for as long as he could. In fact, he forced the fight to go on for more than four hours during which time Peter was in agony and unable to combat Corbett's new advanced style that was proving to be futile against the experienced Jackson. Then, in the 25th round, Corbett reportedly engaged in an onslaught. The Salem Daily News reported that although Corbett didn't finish his ban, he unloaded with body shots that kept Jackson from being aggressive afterward. Jackson ended up with his ribs broken and a badly swollen ankle while Corbett also reported to have at least busted one hand in the fight, a fact that eventually contributed to the fight grinding to a standstill. I'm not, I'm not surprised four, four hours in with the battle. The brutal truth slowly become clear as Jackson and Colbert were no longer able to effectively defeat one another. They both continued on gamely, but neither man could emerge victorious. After the 61st round, both men were in no fit state to continue with Peter, even admitting, I don't think he can lick me in a year and I am not going to whip myself trying to whip him. I am too tired. That settled it. The referee, Harim Cook, announced it is evident that this contest is unsatisfactory to the members of this club and I declare it a no contest. In truth, Jackson would have, for the would have had the result today unanimously. But considering the time, a draw would have been fair, especially when the fighters were paid only $2,500 each for over four-hour fighting. And then 10, when 10 grand was on the table, it would have been more politically correct for both men to have collected five grand each. But political correctness in these days were basically non-existent. To the public, these men weren't men at all. They were just prize fighters and the equivalent of a horse on a bet. They didn't care about 
what they were getting. Colbert at first demanded four grand, but eventually accepted the much lower pay uh, that was being offered. Peter said, I'm a poor man and I may have to accept it, but I do not think it would be just or fair. The purse ought to be divided between us. But he was in a contractual situation. He said, I am in the hands of the club. However, I suppose I will do about as they will with me. So he had to accept this two and a half grand. It's, it's crazy. Four hours finally get two and a half grand each. In, insane. He ended up taking that $2,500 as uh, better than nothing, he said. Less than a week after the controversial fight, Sullivan went on a bar crawl and actually ended up intentionally, apparently, on Turk Street and in Peter's salon. He had been followed by the examiner reporter, and this is what they wrote. Sullivan yelled at Sam Hess, who was tending bar. Where's the mug that runs this place and thinks he's a fighter? Peter was momentarily out of the bar. Sullivan then said, Oh, say he's no good? Blackman ain't no good anyhow. He's a duffer. I'd like to tell him so. See? There's kids in New York can lick carloads of Jacksons. At this point, Peter returned to the bar, tapped Sullivan on the shoulder and said, You're talking through your hat. Sullivan said, Say, come off, you're a chump. Peter repeated he was talking through his hat, and Sullivan took off his coat and struck out at Peter, but Peter eluded his fist. Sullivan's companions bundled him home to the Baldwin Hotel. On May the 30th, 1891, a drunk Sullivan stopped up one of his shows midway through to address the crowd, and quite simply made himself sound and look like a complete arsehole. This is what the examiner reported, and again, please be aware that there are many racial slurs used by this ignorant, racist man that was known as John L. Sullivan. And this is what he said. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been lied about. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say a nigger's no good. If God wanted a nigger to fight, why didn't he make him white? Nigger's no good. I'll lick him. I'll lick any nigger. I wish to say something, and I'm going to say it. Ladies and gentlemen... The newspapers, yes, the newspapers, the newspapers say mudder. It's not so. I can say mudder. See mudder, I can fight any nigger and lick him in a minute. Any nigger can't fight. He ain't no good. Ain't as good as a white man, anyhow. No nigger is, if he was, he'd be white. Now the examiner say yes, the examiner newspaper. I was drunk and had fight with Jackson. He's absolutely pissed. It's incredible. Uh, Sullivan continued with these racist rant and he said, I know newspapers and I know newspaper reporters. I know them pretty well. I'm John L. Sullivan and they're reporters. But I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I pay for what I drink. The editor of The Examiner don't pay for my drinks. I was born in Boston and I can lick any nigger. If no ladies was here, I'd give them my opinion of The Examiner. Well, apparently, many of those ladies left the room, so he could give his honest opinion. He's just blabbering a load of shit. But he just continued with this ridiculous racial language throughout and looked even more foolish than if it was even possible. I mean, the guy was a racist piece of shit. And on June 27, Peter and Sullivan actually met. They met for a third time. And a female Chronicle reporter actually wrote about their meeting just as Sullivan was taking a tour to Australia. Well, this is what the reporter wrote. So just then, W.W. Norton, a well-known sporting man, made his presence and shook hands with Sullivan. 
He said, I want to introduce Peter Jackson to you. For what? Asked the champion. Because I have known him since he was a boy, and I think you two champions should meet. Bring him along, replied John L. As he gave his hand a royal wave, the crowd on the dock was not aware of the expected meeting, and when Jackson arrived, a lot of excitement was created. Sullivan and party left the cabin and went round to the port side of the steamer, where the introduction took place. Jackson, all smiles, approached the gathering with Bill Norton. Uh, Jack Barnett, actually turning to John L. Sullivan, said, This is Mr. Jackson, Mr. Sullivan. The two champions, one white and the other black, looked at each other on a sizing up principle when Sullivan spoke. How are you, Jackson? How do you do, Sullivan, responded the black champion, as he extended his hand in a manly way. Both shook hands in a friendly manner. You are a big fellow. Do you think you could fight me? Asked John L. Sullivan a moment later. I bar no one, responded Jackson quickly. Here, friends called out to Sullivan that the occasion was only a friendly introduction. Well, said Jackson, Mr. Sullivan, I sincerely wish you success on your trip to Australia. Thank you, responded the world champion and the two shook hands again and parted. "'What do you think of Peter Jackson?' asked a reporter of Sullivan. "'I am better pleased with him than I expected to be. "'This is the first time I ever spoke to him in my life. "'But he is a nigger, and that settles it with me. "'God did not intend him to be as good as a white man, "'or he would have changed his colour, see?' "'And the pugilist retired to test the quality of the ship's goods. "'On November 10th, 1891, Peter issued a challenge, something he rarely did himself, to Paddy, inviting him to fight him. Mr Slavin, I see claims to be heavyweight champion of Australia, a title which I won, still hold, and am open to defend against all comers. If he can defeat me, he will honestly be entitled to what he now claims and be in a better position to meet Mr Sullivan for the world's championship when the time comes. I trust Mr Slavin will see the force of what I say and favour me with an early acceptance of my offer. Peter suggested the California club as the venue for $10,000. No direct reply to this challenge ever came, but then on November 16th, a fight with Paddy in London was published. The National Sporting Club's agent in America, Captain James Cook of the Boston Police News, wired Peter that the club was putting up $10,000 in prize money, plus it would pay Peter $500 for his expenses. For the funds to be raised, Paddy must accept the fight to take place during Derby Week in London on June 1892. And Paddy was reported as saying, it will decide who is really the champion of Australia and which of the two is the proper man to pit against. Now, while in New York, Peter and Paddy watched each other spar and spoke briefly before heading their separate ways. Then while in Brooklyn, according to a New York correspondent, that the London Hawk on February 6th, Peter actually addressed his fans who were worried of an unfair fight against Paddy. And he said, no fear, boys, about me getting fair play if I hold a good hand. I've never been treated so well in all the places I've been to as I was in England. Loud cheers and hoorays actually filled the air. And Peter continued, he said, Having a square deal gives me no worry or anxiety. 
I got it with the English champion, Jem Smith, and I shall get it again. I'm not going to meet a dunce as we have met as boxers before in Australia. I don't say I shall win, but I do say I will try to do so. And I, if I whip him, uh, it will be because I have found uh, a better man than myself if he whips me. So on March 25th, Peter sailed to England on the White Star steamer, the Britannic, arriving on Friday, April 4, 1892 in Liverpool. He was actually interviewed the next day before he travelled to London by a sportsman reporter who asked, you met Sullivan in, in America? And Jackson just replied, yes, I met Frank twice, once in Chicago, once in St. Louis. He was looking, I thought, very well indeed. And the reporter was obviously looking for a scoop. He just asked, was it a friendly meeting, I suppose? And, and Jackson, well, we didn't give him anything. And he just said, certainly in every way. That was his response. The fight was scheduled for 20 rounds, but by the 9th, Jackson was in control. It was even recalled in 1937 by Lord Lonsdale that at the end of the 9th, Slavin was being urged to surrender. He said, give in, not I, never to a black man. If true, it was good advice that he should have taken. The 10th and last round was explained by author Bob Peterson. Jackson, with terrific force, landed a right and a left on the jaw, which left Slavin reeling under the blows. He tried to avoid, but rolled about and made a big effort to turn the tables, but he was powerless. Jackson went after him and rained blows upon him as he worked round the ring, trying with the greatest pluck to keep going. Several times Slavin could hardly defend himself, and Jackson at last sent him down with a right-hander. Jackson first landed one in the stomach which brought Slavin's head forward and before he could get out of danger, Jackson found his jaw with an awful punch which made him reel and in a moment, Jackson's left hand struck the side of his head. Harold Furness gave his account of the match at which he had been present and he recalled. Poor Slavin looked in pitiful plight. One eye, the left, was completely closed and his lips and cheeks were swollen to a fright extent. He was dazed from the last three punches. He wandered about aimlessly. Bob Peterson explained, Jackson knocked him onto the ropes where he half stood and half hung in a very helpless manner. The rain of blows recommenced, but Slavin instinctively turned around and sank down. The sportsman wrote, Towards the close, he was almost oblivious to all around him, clutched Jackson round the legs, and the latter appealed in dumb fashion to the referee, hardly knowing what to do. Jackson stepped back with his arms by his side and looked towards the referee and said, I must finish him then. As, as quickly as he gave Slavin a number of savage blows on the head and a final wipe to the jaw so that Slavin collapsed in a senseless heap on the floor. Smiler Howes actually wrote that to the everlasting honour of Peter Jackson to be recorded that instead of striking the beaten man, he opened his brownery arms and caught him and then held him from falling to the floor. And even then, Slavin tried to struggle away and lifted his arms for a blow. Jackson turned and made a mute but eloquent appeal to the referee, which went did. So he, he's, he's, he's mashing him up and then holding him up. Uh, according to the end of A.G. Howes' uh, 1910 novel, Peter, standing a yard or two away, looked around at the referee and threw out his hands with an appealing gesture, merely asking if it were absolutely necessary for him to strike his already beaten man. The referee nodded to him to go on and finish. There was no alternative. 
So Peter Jackson was obviously done business, knocked him out, and he was declared the winner of what was acknowledged as one of the most scientific glove contests ever at the time. He remained as he had been in 1886, the champion of Australia. The day after his victory, June the 1st, Peter went to Epsom to see the running of the derby and his luck was just getting better if he wasn't in already. His horse, uh, Sir Hugo, actually won the sweep. So there are two different stories about the day Peter and Paddy collecting their paychecks and how it went. Now, one was written by the sportsman uh, and was full of just pleasantries uh, that ended in a bet. Uh, but the other is just far more entertaining. It was actually written by Nat Fleischer in 1929, which is the one we're going to use. When they called at the National Sporting Club the day after the derby, June 2nd, to get their shares, Fleming handed Peter a cheque for £1,750 and Paddy one for £250. Ah, Paddy, Peter was reported as saying, you wouldn't have got that but for me. Paddy tore up the cheque and threw it into the fireplace. It was a grand gesture. The following day, Paddy got himself a replacement. On June 6th, the pair were back in the ring for a five-round exhibition in front of 6,000 fans. Peter fought with a broken hand, but both were still feeling the effects from their real bout. After the exhibition, Peter had his arm in a cast and was unable to fight. On July 27th, a letter from Peter's boxing friend, Joe Tronoyski, explained that Jackson's hand was still bad and that he would stay in Europe for another six weeks. Davis and Tronoyski left England on August 26, 1892, so they could witness the Sullivan-Corbett fight in New Orleans. Peter stayed on because he wanted to be a tourist for a little longer. He was back in England and at Doncaster when the news of Corbett's victory came through. Corbett became, in American terms, the champion of the world. Peter's opinion was, there is no champion of the world now and I am desirous of having a chance for the honour with anyone else that is after it. Corbett, of course, is champion of America by virtue of his defeat of Sullivan. When asked, had he ever fought Sullivan, Peter replied, choosing his words with extreme care. No, he barred me, he said, on account of colour. Interestingly, following his retirement from the ring, Sullivan wrote, or probably dictated in 1905, why he had honestly not fought Peter Jackson. And once again, we must apologise for the racial slurs being used but this is what was written or dictated however he did it so a white man has nothing to gain by swapping punches with a negro i have twice been almost goaded into meeting the colored brother but i took a second think in time a club in san francisco hung up a fortune for me to meet peter jackson there was twenty thousand dollars in it and nobody ever questioned my ability to win it but I ducked. I was insulted from one end of the country to the other in the attempt to stampede me into that fight. And I was angry enough at one time to throw principles to the wines and give Jackson his. Another time I almost came to set up with George Godfrey. But I'm glad to say I didn't. He admitted it. He ducked him. Peter did his first ever vaudeville act in Philadelphia at this time and continued with his exhibitions before returning to San Francisco via New York. 
The Chicago Tribune published an interview on December the 6th, 1892, in which Peter said, I am still the champion of Australia and the champion of the Pacific coast by virtue of my victory over Joe McNauliffe. And I should think Colbert would be after the championship of the world. He laid no claim to the champion of England nor Commonwealth, which which he was the first, uh, the first ever Commonwealth champion, but Peter realised he would not go on forever. He told the Chicago Tribune, when my powers are declining, then I don't know what I will do. Probably go back to Australia. I shall go back there someday to stay. He was getting older, and if he was to have one last fight, then he wanted it to be for that heavyweight championship of the world, which was held by Colbert, and by God did he deserve it. On November 18th, Peter and Chernowski were in Philadelphia and Corbett was staying at the same hotel. In the lobby, Peter put out his hand saying, Mr. Corbett, I congratulate you on your splendid victory, upon which Corbett muttered some words. On November 28th, Peter beat Dennis Keeler in four rounds while in Philadelphia. He continued to fight in exhibitions, but they were now becoming few and far between, so the money was drying up. He really did need that Corbett fight who was clearly unwilling to revisit another fight to the finish, even if Jackson was not the fighter he once was. Peter also split with his long-term trainer, Fitzpatrick. The split was amicable, but it was also a sign that Peter was really starting to wind down his boxing career. To earn some extra money, Peter did a bit of stage acting. The San Francisco Call on February the 22nd applauded his frostbitten eyebrows and snowy pierpoint whiskers and said, Nick Long has so carefully coached him that the hardened critic finds it very difficult to pick any flaws in Peter Jackson's makeup, stage action, gesture voice, reading or interpretation of the character created by Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe. The simple truth is that Peter is an ideal Uncle Tom. The story of Uncle Tom's cabin is of Uncle Tom, an enslaved person portrayed as saintly and dignified, noble and steadfast in his beliefs. While being transported by boat to auction in New Orleans, Tom saves the life of little Eva, an angelic and forgiving young girl whose grateful father then purchases Tom. If you're wondering if the term Uncle Tom originated from this play, then you'll be correct. They took the play on tour, travelling from San Francisco to places like Washington, Chicago and even New York. And to everyone's surprise, Peter proved a good actor. With the St. Louis Post-Dispatch writing... When the tour was drawing to an end, it must be said that the Australian-African actor Pugilist is surprisingly good in his stage work, all things considered. Even the New York Dramatic Mirror reported in October that Jackson is much better as Uncle Tom than could have ever been expected, although there is no surety that he will legitimately win half as many as much attention as an actor as he was a fighter. Peter, always a fan of Shakespeare and enjoyed entertaining people, so it was no surprise that he moved quite easily into acting. Uh, the Boston Sunday Globe told its readers, Peter's a fine Shakespearean reader and many times has corrected persons who were rated high in that line while they were giving quotations from the Bard's immortal words. He carries a large volume of plays with him and during his leisure moments when not playing checkers, he reads them. So in between season breaks of this tour of the play, Peter travelled back to Britain with his new trainer, 
Dan Murphy, dubbed Handsome Dan. And uh, Sullivan's uh, bottle holder in 1890 was this guy. And he was also an opponent of Jack Johnson's as well in 1902, later on. So he participated in a few exhibitions which had dried up in America. But his visit was private, so not much coverage was actually given to that short stay. On July 6th, he witnessed the wedding of Prince George and Princess May of Tech and told the sportsman reporter the royal marriage was a sight in itself and a sight that's seldom seen. I have travelled around the world and have never seen anything like it for brilliancy or grandeur and perhaps never will. In May 1893, George Harting, a strong supporter of Peter Jackson and timekeeper, confronted Colbert about his reluctance to fight Peter. And according to the San Francisco call, this is what it wrote. In the presence of a small crowd, Corbett said he was willing, and Harting made him put it in writing. Harting handed Corbett's letter to the call, which published it on June the 13th. Corbett then sent Peter a cable promising him a fight. On July the 12th, Peter cabled New York to say he was delighted and he was coming back. But he left London only on July 19th, maybe as a result of Harting's intervention. Corbett sent Peter another telegram on July 18th saying that he was prepared to fight him at Coney Island on November the 1st. At once, Peter wired the sportsman. I leave Euston by the special at 8.55 on Wednesday morning. Mr. Priest accompanies me to America. The sportsman commented that Jackson's stay in England has been all too short. Business matters, however, call for his return to the States. Mr. Priest, who accompanies him, is the well-known whip and the gentleman who handles the ribbons when the National Sports Club hiss go for their coaching trips down the green lanes of old England. He rushed across the Atlantic with Priest, but the Coney Island project ended in more disappointment. Peter said a year later. Now I don't know what transpired while I was on my way back here, but on my arrival I was informed that various conferences had been held and that the fight was to take place in June. When June came, Corbett was in England. Somebody was confused because the fight was proposed in July to take place in November. It was surprising to Peter to be offered the opportunity and probably the reason for him wanting to get to his destination so quickly because only the year before Corbett's trainer, Billy Delaney, declared, Corbett will never meet Jackson again. We're against fighting Negroes anymore. Besides, Corbett has bested Jackson already, and there is nothing to be gained by fighting again. So over the course of three years, from 1892 to 1894, Corbett avoided Peter because he wanted the money that the heavyweight world championship gave him by performing in the theatres and endorsing products rather than fighting the ring. By not fighting anybody, he was guaranteed to keep his world title. Corbett would make even more, or he'd make jokes that Peter was no threat to him and did everything he could to keep up public interest in a contest with Peter while simultaneously deferring the match until Peter would be too old. That was the aim of it. And Bill Norton wrote in the referee, the truth of the whole business is that Corbett is avoiding Jackson until such time as he feels thoroughly sure that Peter is a back number. Norton said that he had been told by Delaney that the whole idea was to keep Peter on the shelf until he was altogether too old to fight Corbett. 
He said Jackson is not so young as he used to be by uh, long chalks, Norton said, when Peter was 33. And moreover, he is at that period in his life from an athletic point of view where there are exceedingly few brilliant performances left in him. The acting continued though, but Peter also began sparring with Choynoski on the stage nightly as an addition to the show, and they continued to do so over the next year. However, their sparring sessions actually began to overshadow the main play. A Daily Review newspaper confirmed that Pete was the attraction. The gallery howled for him, and the balcony stamped for him. The more sedate below clapped their hands for him. Everybody wanted to see Peter Jackson. And it noted after the boxing was over, there was plenty of empty seats all over the house. They had to leave after the sparring. And the prospect of a Corbett fight in May 1894, a year since the first time Corbett accepted and then didn't follow through with his challenge, marked the end of the Uncle Tom's cabin. As the months and years passed, Peter was never given another shot with Corbett. Not during the years when he was champion, nor after his defeat to Bob Fitzsimmons in 1897. At various times, Corbett suggested fights in Jacksonville, in El Paso, at Coney Island, in Sioux City, at Wagoner in Indian Territory, even over the border on an island near Aurelia in Ontario. And although the dates were always set well in advance to accommodate Corbett's theatrical engagements, they never suited him when the time approached. He also wanted an unlimited number of rounds, whereas Peter wanted no more than Buck could have been convinced to go unlimited, as he had agreed to on various other times, especially with a world title on the line. The Chicago Tribune wrote on June 29, 1894, The match has been talked of so much, and the principals have been verbose over it, that the public has lost nearly all interest in the episode. Corbett killed the fight completely, but Peter was always hoping, in fact, he never gave up hope, even when he and Davis got into a row about it, when David told Peter to forget Corbett, that it was a farce, and to get on with his life. This dispute got Peter so angry with Davis that he wired O'Rourke in New York, who managed George Dixon, Barbados Joe Walcott, and some other blacks, asking if he would take over as his manager. The final scene in the corporate mockery was played out in the Grand Central Hotel in New York City on Monday, August 13th, 1894. The London sportsman gave a detailed account of the event. Now in the hotel room, Peter, Corbett, Delaney and O'Rourke discussed where and when the fight would occur. Corbett would not fight in England or America, except in the South, preferably Jacksonville, where he had beaten Charlie Mitchell. Peter would not fight in Florida, and the debate became hostile. The South, London and the North were discussed to exhaustion, basically, at, by but at no point did anyone ever suggest that a suitable venue might be found in Australia. So this scene in the Grand Central Hotel effectively marked the end of the Corbett business. Peter gave up all hope in Corbett's promises, all faith in his goodwill. He left for Santa Cruz and for England, where he stayed for the next three years. Because Peter didn't fight anyone or against anyone from 1892 to 1898 against Nobody between Sullivan and Jeffries to earn him no income from prize money from fighting and side bets. There was just nothing there for him. 
nor was he again taken on as an instructor at the California Club where he had earned good money. He had sold his bar, his business, uh, through keeping, but kept the lease on the Turk Street property. So that was the only steady income and small income they had coming in. Uh, Peter actually wrote an open letter. He said, I do not propose to stay awake nights thinking of replies to Fit Corbett's unfair assertions. He then added, my present plans, which I will alter only in the event that Corbett agrees to an early meeting, are to sail from New York to the West Indies September 15, where I will visit my mother, whom I have not seen for years. Then I will go to England, and if things are agreeable, will take on Frank Slavin. Corbett has not treated me in a sportsman-like manner, and I will bother him no more. Now, spending time with his old friends and family must have given Peter time to rethink the last few years, and he let out his resentment when he arrived in London, telling the sportsman that he denounced Corbett, saying, Corbett is no man. He is a liar, and my words can be put in print. Peter continued and said, He caused me to waste my time and my money running after him, and never once did he intend acting up to what he said through the papers. Corbett had no idea of fighting me. A fact I found out when he turned tail after I'd given way and agreed to all his propositions. Peter would have to earn his living, as he had done earlier, by sparring in music halls with his enormous sparring partner, David St. John. They even travelled over to Paris, where his act was well received, and then at the start of 1895, Peter and St. John began performing around Britain. Peter spent three years in England, without one meaningful fight, but hadn't announced his retirement, maybe hopeful of one last big payday and one last shot of glory. At a theatre in Glasgow, Peter was billed as the champion pugilist of the world and St John as the champion of Wales. The theatre was packed to the rafters and it was reported that they appeared with a marvellous farmyard mimic. Joe Edmonds, a black comedian, dancer and banjo player, the sister Slater and other acts in Glasgow and elsewhere, the story was always the same. One or two shows a night at the local venue and wildly enthusiastic crowds. Their warmest reception came in Wales, where they exhibited at the Empire before a large crowd. In 1896, Peter and Bob Fitzsimmons were both touring and coincided in Cardiff for their first meeting since the days at the White Horse. They may have sparred for old time's sake, Peter returned to the California AC in May 1896 and the sportsman reported there were loud calls for Peter Jackson who was in the club at the time and promptly the coloured champion took to the ring. And the article continued, he said, in a few well-chosen words, Peter said he was sorry the affair had fallen through. Corbett was the one man left he wished to meet. He could not go against the ruling of the club anxious as he was to settle the old dispute. No one was left to fight, therefore he must retire from active participation in a profession he had he trusted, followed in an horrible manner. Jackson was lustily cheered and an end came to the business. In June 1896, at a benefit in London, both Peter and Jem Mace performed. Fitzpatrick, Peter's old trainer, told the referee, I was very much surprised. 
he told the, it told Norton from the referee. To see him looking so well after all I'd heard about him. There is another good fight left in Jackson without a doubt. He looked much better than he did three days before he went in training for the Joe McNuller fight. Although he still looked apart, Peter was now beginning to drink a lot more than usual. So much so that he was unfit to perform in some of his acts. On July 28, 1896, a newspaper reported from London that Peter Jackson, the coloured heavyweight pugilist, was arrested last night outside the Tivoli Music Hall for being drunk and disorderly. He was arraigned at the Bow Street Police Court this morning, found guilty and fined five shillings. On October the 6th, 1896, the sportsman told its readers, the coloured champion is still in the trade. Peter the Great has been fulfilling lucrative arrangements in the provinces and next month he commences a sparring engagement in Oldham. Australian American newspapers portrayed him as a womanizer and always reporting on his physical decline and wasted lifestyle. The word was in America and Australia that Peter lived an extravagant life. Bob Peterson explained in his book, the word used by the gossipers was gay. He was said to be leading a gay life. Fitzpatrick in 1894 used the phrase broken down by disease or gay living so that when we find the referee reporting him among the gayest of the gay, we have nowadays to inquire what was understood then by gay. Now, according to the 1882 Sydney Slang Dictionary, gay actually meant loose or dissipated, and a gay woman meant a kept mistress or a prostitute. A gay house was a brothel. To be told that Peter was leading a gay life would be to understand at that time that he was visiting expensive brothels, playing with actresses and skirt dancers and patronising the fancy women who received gentlemen in fashionable hotel rooms. Along with this activity, when gambling on horse races, roulette, wheeling and dealing with a criminal element and almost notoriously Havanas and hashish. Most importantly, Peter was becoming an alcoholic. He was making a fortune, but drinking what he didn't gamble. He made money hand over fist, it was said, but it passed through his fingers like sand. Even still, Peter continued with his exhibitions, no longer with the big Welshman son. In the new year of 1897, the Sydney Arrow reported, Peter Jackson and Bill Slavin have been drawing good business in England lately by their sporting show, which is held to be nearly as good as anything of the kind could be. Peter was drinking heavily, but he had not lost it entirely. In Reno, Nevada, on March 17, 1897, Corbett lost his title to Bob Fitzsimmons, who used the solar plexus punch to put him down for the count. After the fight, Corbett, crying with rage and jabbering insanely, according to the Chronicle, went over to Fitzsimmons in his corner and attacked him, and he had to be dragged off him. Well, as reported by Norton, the new champion of the world said smugly, I have promised never to fight again. I meet the enemy and he is mine. Uh, back to Peter and he began teaching boxing two nights a week to the wealthy white man's sons, apparently, which brought him in some of that extra dough that he needed. A few months later, when Peter was back in America, where he was interviewed by the New York World Reporter, he said, yes, I've come here to fight. It's my business and that's what I'm here for. I'll take them one by one. I've got money to back me 
and I'm looking for battle. Someone actually asked him, you won't dodge Fritz, as in obviously Fitzsimmons, to which he responded, I fight anyone. The reporter asked, Fitzsimmons included, and Jackson threw out his chest, breathed hard and replied, Mr. Fitzsimmons will be more than welcome. He then left for Chicago and San Francisco. As we mentioned much earlier in the episode, Fitzsimmons had no interest in fighting Peter Jackson, even though he hadn't fought in five years and was now 36 years old. However, he was caught worse for wear by the Bulletin, who reported on September 1897 that he had been hitting the, the bottle hard. So it said his massive shoulders, once admired by thousands, were stooped and bent. His legs, once straight and firm, wobbled. Indeed, it was a sad sight. He looked but the tottering wreck of his former self. He was followed by a mob of hoodlums who cheered in his steps. However, the bulletin did finish on a, a better note. It said, even in his state of intoxication, the whilom idol of the world acted only the part of a gentleman. His language was as polite as that of a parson. With his money running out and Peter decided to make a return to the ring. Initially, it was to fight Peter Mayher, but that was cancelled due to some sort of ridiculous locality ruling by with the police. So Peter chose the next best option and signed on December 4th, 1897 to fight Jim Jeffries early in February 1898. But the date was eventually settled for March 22nd at Woodward's Pavilion in San Francisco. Peter, who had not fought for six years, not since the Slavin fight in London, had never wanted to fight Mayer and was not keen on Jeffries. But he was compelled to fight Jeffries because he had no money and nobody else was offering. A 37-year-old Peter Jackson took the undefeated 26-year-old James J. Jeffries and to say this was a mismatch, well, that would be putting it lightly. Once both men were in the ring, Jeffries explained in My Life and Battles, Jackson standing in his corner bowed to me very politely and smiled as if he were about to play a game of handball instead of trying to knock each other's head off. This surprised me a little, as most of the men I had fought tried to look ugly and throw a scare into me. I managed to grin a little and bow to him in return. It was an even fight after the first round, but as described by the Lawrence Daily World, Jackson displayed some of his old-time cleverness in ducking and jabbing with the left, but he could not hit hard enough to stop the rushes of his younger and stronger antagonist. The second round was lively until Peter got a hard swing on the jaw which sent him down on his back. He arose only to go down again from the same blow and was saved by the bell. Jackson came up looking fairly fresh in the third round but soon received a hard left on the jaw which made him run helplessly about the ring. Another blow from Jeffrey sent him against the ropes where he hung unable to lift his hands. The fight was over, as explained by Bob Peterson in Bob Peterson's book. The referee stepped between the fighters. Cries arose on all sides. Uh, Stop the fight. Uh, Jeffries actually drew back for the referee, Jim McDonald, to count. But McDonald said, I can't do any counting because he isn't down. So he's hurting, but he's not down. His head was drooling. Um, he was powerless and helpless. Jeffrey said to McDonald's, he's done, Jim. And as he related in 1927, walked over, pulled his arms inside the ropes, and then his body, without support, slipped to the floor. 
and the great old Peter Jackson was counting out. While McDonald was still counting, Captain Gillen of the place actually stepped in the ring and had Jackson lifted in his corner. As soon as McDonald could make himself heard, he said, the police have stopped the fight and I proclaim Jeffrey is the victor. The whole thing had lasted a quarter of an hour and Peter had been defeated for the first time since Farnham in 1884, although other records dispute this claim. We, however, do not. Norton told the referee there was no scene of wild enthusiasm when the decision was announced. There were cheers for Jeffries, of course, and there were just a noisy, just as noisy cheers for Peter as he pulled himself together and made his way out the ring. No more popular pugilist ever had a decision recorded against him. Peter issued a press release which concluded, I have had done to me tonight what I have done to many others in my day, but it is hard to see the reputation which it has taken me 15 years to earn swept away in a few minutes. Peter collected the losers 30% of the fighters 60% of the take, which amounted to $1,878. And while in his dressing room, Peter addressed the press. He told the Los Angeles Daily Times reporter, It's the fortune of war. The youngest and strongest man won. And as I said before the fight, I will not murmur as I was fairly whipped. I counted on skill and long experience to carry me through, but it was no use against the great strength of Jeffries. To the Chronicle he said, I am sorry that my friends have been disappointed and that they have lost their money, but I feel that this beating, though it may have thrown me out of the race for good, has not disgraced me or hurt my record. Jeffries is wonderfully strong and active, and I was up against it hard. That is all there is about it. I am not a youngster anymore, and we must all find our finish sooner or later, I guess. He then correctly and philosophically explained, It'll all be the same in a thousand years. What's the difference? He then concluded by saying, I can't talk about my plans at this time, and I don't care to say yet whether I intend to abandon the business or not. I think I will, but I won't say for sure. Peter denied he was retiring, but was not sure what he would be doing. However, the papers felt that he should, and the Chronicle wrote, The black hero of the prize ring, the idol of the galleries, and one of the cleanest and cleverest fighters that ever stood in a ring, is a has-been, finally and for always. Peter himself predicted that Jeffries would become the champion, which he did the next year when Jeffries defeated Peter's pupil Bob Fitzsimmons at Coney Island on June the 9th, 1899, and by 1904, he retired as the heavyweight champion of the world. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch was told Peter Jackson celebrated his defeat by Jim Jeffries at San Francisco by getting gloriously drunk, and for months after, all Peter did was drink, looking for happiness at the bottom of a bottle. His assets were actually pawned one by one. The diamond pin, the gold-headed canes and the fly and dumbbell uh, stick pin. And he drunk away the proceeds. It was reported that he now paid five cents for a glass of beer and ate his morning's meal at the lunch counter. Stew, bread and cheese. At noon he made his dinner at a second salon on his route where he had another glass of beer a great plate of soup, potato salad and pretzels. In 1899, he was living at 24 Turk 
renting a room in the building that he had once owned and leased, inactive and unlikely to return to try and defend his coloured championship of the world. It was actually passed over to Frank Childs after he beat Bob Armstrong on January the 29th, 1898 in Chicago. Peter Jackson, though, well, the drink burned away his money and soon he fell into arrears with his rent, paying none of it, none for months. And by the middle of the year, he actually owed $78 to his landlady who actually wanted to evict him and seize the very few possessions that he had pending the payment. The Chronicle headlined its story, Peter Jackson, Pitiful Condition. But, but what was unknown to the Chronicle and even to Peter himself was that he actually had contracted tuberculosis after the Jeffreys fight. So the Chronicle said on June 25th that there would be a benefit for Peter held on June 30th, 1899, put together by his good friend and bar owner, John L. Hergert. And they eventually held that benefit at the Woodwoods Pavilion in San Francisco. 1,000 spectators attended. In July 1899, a few days after he officially turned 38, his friends got him out of San Francisco and then he ended up in Victoria, the capital city of British Columbia. A friend said, he started to drink up all the liquor in sight as soon as he arrived in Victoria, but the warm climate might help his tuberculosis. In no fit state to fight, some unnamed friends of Peter's organised a 20-round fight with Jim Jeffords, which somehow turned in to three shorter fights at Victoria, Vancouver and Nanaimo. The first bout, a 10-rounder in Nanaimo, was predictably poor, and the second in Victoria was a five-round disappointment. Both ended in draws. The fight in Vancouver, by far the most important of the three, is the one on every record as his last ever fight. It was a disaster. Jackson was counted out after being knocked down in the fourth. The bell sounded and the referee stopped the contest, but even more embarrassing was that according to reports, Peter Jackson failed to land a single serious blow. The reason? He was drunk. People in the crowd were even yelling out to Jeffords, don't hit a drunken man. Peter wrote a letter from Portland to a Denver paper and it read, As you doubtless know, I recently boxed a man by the name of Jeffords at Vancouver, BC. Our agreement was to box a series of exhibition bouts, one at Nanaimo, one at Victoria and one at Vancouver. We boxed the first two, and in the third bout, Jeffords saw that I was intoxicated and took advantage of me. He was given the decision in four rounds, though I was far from being out. I came to this city yesterday to offer to beat him in six rounds, but he heard of my coming and left for your city. Well, desperate for money, Peter and Paddy left, so he hooked up with Paddy, and they left Victoria, and they sailed north to Spa, in the Arctic, uh, Dawson City in Alaska was the plan and to play at vaudeville houses. The voyage actually ended in disaster. Peter went 1,000 miles up the coast as far as Skagway in Alaska from where it, he was to then land in Dawson. When he reached Skagway, he actually fell ill and had to be taken back south. He ended up spending 82 days in Royal Jubilee Hospital from September the 14th until December the 5th, 1899. The press actually believed that he was dying and they reported his diagnosis as chest pains and pneumonia. When he was well enough to be discharged from hospital, he was completely broke 
and was suffering with a condition that would eventually kill him. He spoke to the referee and it printed what he said on March 14, 1900. He said, well, I won't complain, said Jackson to his visitor. I made lots of money and I've spent it. No man can say I owe him a cent. No man can say I ever asked for charity. If it were not for the fact that I would like to repay in kind some of those who were my presumed friends when I was prosperous, I would give up the fight now. But the treatment they have accorded me is the one thing I wish to repay. They never wanted for anything while I had it. It was theirs for the asking. But I will not cry about it. If I had the whole thing to do again, I don't know but what I would be in the running. Experience is a great teacher, but I believe I've done some good in my life and the good I've done I'm thankful for. All I want is my health back. Give me that and Jackson wants no odds from any person. Peter finished off by saying, and I'll get it back, my boy. Well now, don't worry about them. They know. It's not my way to squeal. What I am, I am. What I've done for others is my affair. What they've done for me, well, as Kipling says, that's another story. On December the 21st, 1899, Peter had told the examiner that Australia has been my home for many years and my oldest and warmest friends are in that far-off land. And so he set sail and returned home to sunny Sydney. By December the 22nd, 1900, Peter caught a cold while out with friends and was laid up in the Geelong Hospital, where he developed symptoms of consumption and would never get over it. Peter's last destination was Roma, a place from which he never returned, because the Brisbane Hospital had a link with the Roma convalescent home. Peter was sent there on recommendation. From there, Peter went to a quiet cottage in Farmstead, just over a mile to the northwest of Roma. Dr Lestrange told his good friend Will Corbett, I have made him as cosy as I can on a farm here, which is used as a small sanitarium. On his deathbed he fretted over the for the farm and loss and how some considered him to have taken a dive. Eventually, Jim Soldier Davis admitted to Will Corbett that Jackson had indeed been poisoned, possibly with potassium bromide. But Will could not tell Peter. He was dying and not fit to see his visitors. On Friday, July 12th, Lestrange wired Will and Jack Dowridge, a sports entrepreneur, summoning them to Roma, asking if they wanted to say goodbye. On Saturday the 13th, Lestrange wired, Peter very weak, would like very much to see you before the end. And then Will wired both Lestrange and Peter that he would come. He booked on Monday's train up from Sydney, but he never took it. O'Connor visited Peter after dinner on Saturday, July 13, his last evening, and remained with him till the end. O'Connor wrote, The only persons present were the nurse, my son, and myself. Minnie told O'Connor that Peter was at the point of death. I asked him if he'd wished to leave any message. He could only speak with great difficulty. He said, Colbert understands me if I should ever see him again. And those apparently were his last words. Then O'Connor said, he wiped his big hand across his eyes and he wept. O'Connor was holding his hand when at 9.47 Peter died without a struggle. 
like a tired man falling to sleep at the age of 40. Lestrange said he died of exhaustion, tired out, poor Peter, just slipped away. So Monday was too late for Will Corbett. Uh, Peter died before he could make it. Peter Jackson died of tuberculosis in Roma, Queensland, and was buried at Tuwong Cemetery. A monument was built. It was rectangular. It was a five feet. It was by five feet and four and a half feet, and just over six feet high, with a small iron on top and on both sides of the pendant mourning sprays of lilies and tendrils of ivy. Uh, signifying remembrance carved and a a spring of oak leaves together with acorns in a to signify athleticism so there's little marks on the tomb and at the back of the monument was carved a monogram in black and gold a p entwined with a j and on the right side facing it with a inscription which read to the memory of peter jackson dead in rome queensland 13th of July 1901, aged just 40 years old. A short time after becoming the first black heavyweight champion of the world in 1908, Jack Johnson made pilgrimage to Jackson's grave, a measure of the respect in which the man was held not only in Queensland, but in the boxing community worldwide. And that is the story of Peter Jackson, the life and the career of Peter Jackson, a man who we always say should have been the heavyweight champion of the world, was never given his opportunity. And literally, because of that, his just life seemed to turn into complete turmoil. It was like he'd just given up after the fact that he was messed around for so long for the fight with Corbett that he just gave up in the end and he just decided to go down a completely different route. And it's such a shame because I think Peter Jackson is a pioneer in this sport. The pioneers that most people think of is Jack Johnson. But they forget about people who paved the way for Jack Johnson. People automatically go, yep, Jack Johnson paved the way for Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis paved the way for Muhammad Ali and so on and so forth. No, it was Peter Jackson that paved the way for Jack Johnson. And it's a shame that he never gets the accolades. He never gets the respect. He just never gets the recognition that many other black fighters get from all these different decades and all the profiles that we've done and all the different pioneers of this sport that we've covered, Johnston, is it is a real shame. But I hope that this episode, what it's done for everybody, is opened your eyes up and opened your minds up to a different fighter, a fighter that was clearly avoided, a fighter that the best didn't really want to fight. They drew the colour line massively. But I don't think it was just the colour line that they drew. They drew a line because they knew there was a good chance that they would lose the fight if they got in the ring with Peter Jackson. And that is exactly why, in my mind, these guys didn't want to fight him, but used the fact that there was racism in society at that time as an excuse not to fight him. But it just seems a shame, doesn't it, that you know he dies very young, he doesn't get his shot at world title, he did do quite a lot in his career. He became the champion of Australia, the first Commonwealth champion, the coloured heavyweight champion. So in that regard, he still should be given the recognition. And he was. He Obviously, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in its inaugural Hall of Fame in 1990. But that's not the point. We're in 2023, and I don't think people who follow this sport really know about Peter Jackson, unless they are historians. And I hope that you listening to this show, listening to this career profile, 
are able to go away and do your own research and read your own books on him now and, and actually realize that what you thought you knew about the pioneers of boxing and the black champions of certain eras, you now know more than what you did before. Absolutely. I mean, you think with Peter Jackson, um, I think most people just see that John L. Sullivan line as well and how John L. Sullivan basically begins gloved boxing. He's like the first heavyweight gloved heavy boxing champion. And people just, it's, you know, you, 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 they, it, they would suggest that he ducked Peter Jackson, but the words are there. You can go and find it. He admits, Sullivan admits he ducked him. And he, admit, he admits he ducked him because of the colour of his skin, which is ludicrous. I mean, the shit that come out of his mouth and that pissed up jibe and that rant that we, we threw in there. I mean, it just it shows you the sort of person he was. I know that was society. Uh, can you blame him because he lived in that society? Probably not. But still, I just think I wanted to do a John L. Sullivan career profile show. I'm not sure if I want to do that, to be honest with you. If that's the sort of shit that comes out of his mouth. And But yeah, you're right. He absolutely was the first. He should have been the first, Sean. He should have been the first black world champion, gloved world champion. And they all avoided him, didn't they? You're talking Sullivan, you're talking Colbert, and you're talking even Fitzsimmons, the guy he actually taught as well a little bit. I mean, like you say, though, he did live a charm life. I mean, he walked arm in arm with the Marquis of Queensbury while in Piccadilly, apparently. He shook hands with the Prince of Wales. He dined with Lord Lonsdale and he appeared as a guest at a royal wedding. That alone, as much as all the other stuff, travelling around the world, but everybody knew it, though. Peter Jackson, even in England, in every continent, pretty much, other than Africa, we mentioned, and everybody identified Peter Jackson as the heavyweight champion of the world. There's no doubt about it. They all said it. How many different newspapers, whether it be in Australia, whether it be in America, and whether it be in England, all of them said the same thing. All of them, at one point, suggested that Sullivan was ducking Peter. Colbert didn't want to fight Peter. He was the best. He was the world champion. So this episode, I think for us, just to throw it out there now, guys, he didn't have a title. He didn't. But you, the literature's there. You can see it. These guys ducked him. They did not want to give him an opportunity. So for us, you know, we're going to fly that flag. Peter Jackson was the first champion. Not the first glove champion, but he should have been. And it's just clear as day. Like It's like Langford. Same thing as Sam Langford. These guys should have been champions, but even more so with Peter because he was ducked because of his skin and it was open. And I know Langford was as well at times, but he was the reverse kind of Lama Johnson with that one. But yeah, Jack Johnson was a tremendous fighter. He avoided Langford, but that's a whole nother ball game. Peter Jackson, what a star, man. I mean, I don't even know. He's just an amazing, he, he's so articulate. And it's just so sad, Sean, how he fell off the wagon there. It was almost like the drink was always there. And then obviously when he got, when he picked up bronchitis, it just changed his life. And we know that was a killer back then anyway. So with that and the consumption of drink, I think eventually just that's why he died. If he Maybe if he didn't pick that up, maybe he revived a bit longer. But tremendous fighter. Tremendous fighter. And, and sounded like a tremendous human being at times, like you said. He, he? He, sounded, yeah. he sounded well ahead of his time. Well ahead of his time in terms so of how, how he conducted himself, how he conducted himself with other people. There's only really a couple of instances where you can kind of, he lets that slip a little bit in some of the quotations that we've read out in this episode. But in the overall story of Peter Jackson, he's just a very eloquent man who seemed to be liked by pretty much everybody he came across, barring 
John L. Sullivan, who just absolutely hated black people and anyone that wasn't white. And that was just clear that that's the type of person he was. But it was just a shame that his life had to take the turn that it did. But then I suppose in some respects, you can understand why it took the turn that it did. You can understand the disappointment, the years of wasted times, trying to earn money. I mean, what do people do in this day and age? A lot of people either turn to gambling, they turn to drink, they turn to drugs. It does happen. It's it's a common theme and a pattern that hasn't changed in over 120 years. And true. It's no That's different. True. It's no different then than what it is now. There was gambling then. There was drugs. There was women. There was drink. There's nothing that's changed now other than the technology, the access to it all is, is even greater than what it was all them years ago. So it's a shame that it had to go that way. But let's not end it on a sour note with his life and the way it ended. Let's, again, remind people of why we did this episode, and it was to shine light on an absolutely forgotten fighter from yesterday. It's Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson is the man that I think you guys need to be looking at and researching and doing your homework on as a boxing fan because you'll certainly enjoy putting together your own perception of him you'll certainly enjoy learning more about him there are books out there we have mentioned them in the episode please if you want to read more into it you can do there are more elements that we haven't included for the episode for the purposes of the fact that you can go and read it as well and enjoy reading about him because it is an enjoyable journey to be on and we hope that this podcast has given you a, a real in-depth insight into who he was and what his boxing career was about and how that led to where he did and, and unfortunately his untimely demise as well. We hope we've been able to present that to you in this episode and if we've really given you something to think about and you've really enjoyed it, then of course let us know because we really do appreciate the feedback on the episode and you can do that by tweeting us on Twitter at career underscore profiles or if you want to give us some feedback elsewhere you can do that on any other social media platform at the btr boxing podcast network please make sure you like and share the episode when you see it on social media it is a great help to show everybody what we do let them hear what we do in these episodes and introduce them shows that we do a final shout out has to go to the patrons of the podcast who subscribe to us separately with an additional membership by supporting us in a small financial way, which then in return gives them access to episodes earlier than the rest of the world. It gives them access to patron-only content. It gives them the ability to listen to episodes without any advertisements in them. And if you're in a position where you can also support us in that way, then please visit patreon.com forward slash BTR Boxing Podcast and see what membership tiers are available. But if you're not able to do that, a like and a share and a retweet, whatever's necessary on social that you can do to support us, that is also greatly appreciated because it supports us and it supports the show. Well, that is it for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed the life and the career profile of Peter Jackson. Podcast Network.